The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, good day, good evening, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages. I am Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Now, before we get to the main story of the day, which has to focus on California, which surprisingly enough is not as bad as you might think it's going to be. <laughs> but uh, I have a couple other things to go now. Here's one that I didn't get to last week. It's actually interesting. The District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., our capital, has settled a class action lawsuit filed by six gun owners who were arrested in the nation's capital for violating gun control laws that have been struck down by courts. So basically, these laws have been declared unconstitutional by the court system, and they were arrested based on these laws. So they're suing. They ended up winning. They won this case. So now all these these gun owners who were, I guess, improperly charged or illegally charged with a law that was struck down by courts... But D.C. decided we're going to enforce this law anyway, even though it's unconstitutional. Well, they just lost a lawsuit. And now each of these people, there's a total money being paid by District of Columbia of $5.1 million. Each of the six named plaintiffs will receive $50,000 under the terms of the settlement. With a larger class of affected gun owners divvying up several million dollars between them. So anybody who had any kind of issues with this law is going to get some money out of this. This, The D.C. is going to be paying you if they violated your constitutional rights after a law was struck down. That is spectacularly good news, and that's how it should be all over the country. Anywhere you go, if they violate your rights, you should be able to sue and win and get compensated for your time and your effort or your, your violation of rights. That all should be an issue that would have to do. So that that is just great that this is happening. And although I didn't think it would happen, it looks like the pendulum of justice, as far as gun laws go or gun issues go, is swinging back toward the side of of righteousness. Is becoming more to the truth. The 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 interpretation of the Constitution is being taken liberal as or is being taken more literally as. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. They are finally realizing that language is clear, concise, and to the point. You infringe on somebody's rights as a city, a state, a a nation, you are going to lose in court. Apparently, the courts are siding with the Constitution on most of this stuff. And it's just, it's crazy because these people are just, they're taking these rights away from us, even though they're clearly spelled out. They have no reason to be able to do it other than they don't believe you, your family, your people are smart enough or competent enough to have a gun. You don't know how to use it. You don't know how to call the police. You know, that that's who's supposed to be doing that. Yeah, well, uh, Heller struck down D.C.'s gun ban years ago, and that was the case that was used to bring this lawsuit and the case that brought the win to all these people in D.C. After apparently, apparently this has been going on for quite a while. September 2021, this started. You know, that's when the lawsuit started. Of course, it's 2023 now, so it took two years to work its way through the court system. So, so much for swift justice, but at least they got some. 
hopefully the 50000 that was given to the original six plaintiffs was enough to cover all their expenses, all their inconveniences, and things like that. You would hope so for violating their Second Amendment rights. To me, it should have been a lot more than that. They should have got, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars each. Make it really sting. Make it hurt. So next time D.C. goes on a an arresting people for gun laws that aren't currently enforceable, they get stung really hard and really bad and make it hurt to where they won't do it again. That seems like the only thing that will slow some of these counties and cities down is if it costs them financially. And that would also be encouragement for people in that area to vote against people who want to violate your gun rights. Because where do you think that all that, that $5.1 million is tax money? That came from every citizen in the D.C. area has to pay a little bit of that. So keep in mind, that's where that comes from. So if you're a taxpayer in D.C., you should be outraged at this, that your tax money had to go to pay people whose rights were violated by the local police departments. So good to know that, and I'm glad to see things swinging back the other way a little bit because every time somebody talks about gun control and they want to talk about compromise, compromise means you give something, you get something, both sides go away with some sort of, I guess, compensation, some sort of part of what they want they get. They don't get all of what they want, but they get something. But when gun control people talk about compromise, all they want us to do is give up our rights. You need to give some here. You need to give this. Well, what do we get? Well, you get to keep whatever's left. That's not a compromise. We already have it now. We should not give up another inch until we get something in return. You want more gun laws to go into effect? Give us national reciprocity with gun carry permits. Give us standard laws across the board. Don't let states or cities make gun laws that violate the national constitution. Enforce that kind of thing. They can't have each city, each state, municipality cannot have their own laws regarding anything else. They can't enforce different laws on interstate highways. But yet, they're allowed to enforce different laws as far as gun rights go, even though gun rights are clearly spelled out. I can't believe anybody with any sense of understanding of the English language knows what it means when the Constitution says, shall not be infringed. Infringed to, to get to the edge of, to, to take away, to bother, whatever you want to call it. Don't infringe on the rights. They are solid, they are clear, and they are concisely spelled out. So, let's keep this going though. I, I love the fact that this happened. And, of course, people have to have guns in order to defend themselves these days. Now, this is a story that Vic left for me, so I'm going to have to scroll through this real quick. But apparently in Austin, Texas, no, it's Austin Police Department, is understaffed and amid the recent crisis in urban crime has told people, if you're in trouble, you need something, don't call us. <laughs> the police are telling you not to call them if something goes wrong. They want you to call the non-emergency number for police help because they're understaffed. And yet, governments are the same people wanting to take these guns away, but yet they can't provide the protection that they're telling you, they're, they're promising you, or telling you you should have, or what you should do is call the police in that issue. Well, here the police are saying, don't call us, we're busy. We're going to use 311, which is the non-emergency number for, I guess, for government assistance in some sort or way, form, or fashion. 
So, you know, I guess, I guess if they determine it's a true emergency, then maybe they'll go out there, but the fact that they're so, so understaffed or can't get people to help or can't get the, what they need, the resources are not there and they're telling people don't call us, don't call 911 if there's an emergency, call 311 to determine if there's an emergency. And Austin has had, okay, let's run through this real quick. Uh, Texas Capital. Yes. They've had a 77% increase in auto thefts, 18% increase in aggravated assaults, and a 30% increase in murders. Now, if you're in Texas and you're living there and you realize the police are not going to be able to answer your call when, when they're needed, I would hope you would take the initiative to exercise your Second Amendment rights, buy a weapon, learn how to use it, Properly stock up on the equipment, ammunition, cleaning supplies, holsters, safe boxes if you live in a house with children, and learn how to defend yourself in case the police cannot answer your call. I've been telling everybody this. You are your own first responder, and you need to take that responsibility seriously. And not just with guns. Have first aid. Have, you know, extra drugs for anybody in the house who needs them on a daily basis. If something were to happen and you get cut off, from your everyday supply, would you be able to survive for a week? Do you have at least a week's worth of supplies to survive on? That's something. It's it's like back when Obama first was elected in 08, everyone thought everything was going to collapse down and preppers became a big deal. People who would prepare for the breakdown of society or supply chain or things like that. And we had a little breakdown in the supply chain after uh, the COVID situation. I mean, it was... Um, Building supplies, certain food stuff, certain cleaning supplies were in, in short supply. And if you didn't have them stocked up for at least a couple of weeks, then you were going to be in a situation where you could have ended up without. And, and for, and some people took that way too seriously. People who were there going, Oh my God, I need 17 cases of toilet paper to survive for a month. No, you don't. But that, of course, causes shortages also. So, Definitely have enough to get you by, but don't go overboard and buy so much that your neighbors don't get any. But that's something, I mean, the proper time was an interesting time to be around because you saw what people valued and what became hard to get or hard to supply. And when things became harder to get, you saw people paying premium prices, which is usually that supply and demand. The basis of capitalism exists for in supply and demand. If there's enough of a supply, everyone will get some. Prices will stay low. When the supply goes down and the demand goes up, obviously, prices will go up along with it. And people were complaining of gouging and this and that or, you know, taking advantage of people. But you know what? If there's not enough of the supply, you have to pay more for it. Those things are in a very delicate balance, supply, demand, and price. And all those things are going to matter. But... Here, without enough police officers and the demand staying the same or increasing even, they cannot get to all the calls. They cannot help defend you if if need be. So you need to be prepared to take care of yourself. Have your stuff available. Have first aid available. Have a weapon. Have ammo. And the most important thing is get the training to learn how to use it effectively. And if you have other people in the house, if any of them can be convinced to do the same, if you have a spouse who's not as interested but still spends time alone, they need to learn how to use the weapon also. It is a tool just like anything else. You may not want to drive anywhere, 
But if you can't get something delivered on your schedule, you're going to have to learn to drive to go get it. You may hate driving, but it's a necessity. Same thing with a gun. You may hate the idea of having a gun, but who is going to defend your family when the police cannot be called or depended on to get there in a timely fashion? Like they always say, when seconds count, the police are minutes away. So, and apparently in Austin, they're a little further than that. <laughs> so I thought that was fascinating. And this is kind of a sign of the times, too, because with the, I guess, negative connotations that a lot of police officers have been getting lately by all these people saying we need to defund the police, take their money away, uh, they're, they're discriminating against people, they're, they're being aggressive, they're bullying people, so they're wanting to cut down on the number of police officers. And criminals just see that as an opportunity. Well, now I know there's 500 less cops than there used to be in this city. That gives me a 25% better chance of being successful when I commit a crime. So keep that in mind. When you see people saying defund the police, look at them and see if see if you can make it profile them. See if they look like someone who can take care of themselves if necessary. Could someone look at you and determine whether you could take care of yourself? Would you be a target based on the way you present yourself? The way you look based on your political views. And I know that sounds bad because the Constitution doesn't have any political sides. It is truly a document of the people and for the people. And it's to protect everybody's rights. In fact, the first ten amendments to the Bill of Rights are all limitations on what the government is allowed to do. They don't grant you any rights. They just tell you the government may not make laws infringing on any of these rights. They cannot do certain things. These are things they are restricted from doing. So keep that in mind. And if you don't have a weapon and you live in a city with people calling for defunding the police department, now might be the time. The prices, as far as market value goes, guns are reasonably priced. I know there's a lot of deals out there because the supply has caught up from the huge demand they had during 2020 and 2021. That demand has subsided some, and the supply chain is filled up as far as guns and ammunition go right now. I'm not saying that'll stay that way forever, because you know all it takes is one threat of making certain kind of weapon illegal to all of a sudden change that balance, and all of a sudden prices skyrocket by 10, 20, 30, 50 percent. But if you're in an area where you're allowed to have whatever kind of weapon you want, or you know, within reason, go ahead and look into it. Look into a training system. Get recommendations from friends, from friends, from family who shoot, from the local gun store that has trustworthy people there or people you think are trustworthy. And if you don't know, look online. YouTube probably has a million videos on which gun you should get. <coughs> but, of course, <clears throat> all that is going to be a matter of what your personal preferences are, what your needs are, what your skill level is. All those things are being going to be considered when you're looking for a weapon. Because like I said last week, I think I've got that question almost every month. Somebody asks me, well, what kind of gun should I get? What should I look for? You know, what do I need? And I think, you know, it's it'd be difficult. I, of course, I feel I have a little bit more expertise in this area being involved in shooting sports for the last 30 years. I have a little bit more expertise. I understand what needs I have, I understand what's comfortable in my hand, I understand what accessories I will need with any weapon. But a lot of people don't. They've never done this before. It's like when you buy a car, 
and you've never driven before. You don't know, do you need floor mats? Do you need a spare tire? Do you need tinted windows? I mean, what kind of things do you need in your car other than what comes with it or the bare necessities? Do you want power windows and power locks? Do you need cruise control? I mean, all those things make a difference based on your preferences. Do you need a bigger car? Are you a bigger person? Or is a smaller car fine for you because you're five feet tall? All those things matter. Everything, are you going to be towing with it? Are you going to be hauling stuff with it from the Home Depot or the Lowe's or the big box store? Bring your TV home in the back of a pickup truck or in the back of a, a four-door sedan? You know, you got to consider what you're going to need it for. Same thing with the gun. Are you using this for home defense? Are you planning on carrying it? Are you not sure if you're going to carry it? Are you not planning on carrying it, but you think, well, you know, if the situation demands it, I may have to do that. You want something common enough to be able to get a good holster for or find somebody who can make you a holster for a less common gun. And with any self-defense weapon of any type that is magazine-fed, I recommend having at least six magazines if it is going to be a primary defensive weapon. Because magazines, they're not permanent. They do wear out. Springs get worn. The lips on the top of the magazine get worn. They don't feed right anymore. They are a wear item. And if you shoot this gun enough, these pieces will wear out. Or if it's an uncommon weapon, with time, eventually it'll become more obsolete and parts become much more difficult to find. So keep that in mind when purchasing something. But most of all, find something that fits Find something you're comfortable with using and get training or instruction from somebody who knows more than you. Just like when you learned to drive, you didn't just jump in the car and go. Somebody started somewhere by teaching you what all the controls were, you know, teaching you how to use them, how to be safe with it, how to operate it properly. Same thing with the gun. All those things have to be learned with any gun that you may purchase or firearm that you may purchase. And a lot of people, most people live in urban areas and a handgun is probably should probably their number one choice when it comes to defense. There are people who will tell you otherwise, but let me tell you, a handgun in most urban scenarios should be your number one choice of weapon. Yes, you can get a shotgun if you want, but again, if you're wielding a shotgun and you have a family, how are you going to put a hand on a child if you've got two hands on your shotgun? You know, consider what you may have to do. If you have to get somebody out of the house, do you have to stand around and defend people who are there? Depends on the scenario, too. Are you being invaded? Have several people broken down your front door? Are they coming for you? Did you just hear a noise in the kitchen? Are you going to walk in the kitchen and come face-to-face with an intruder? Or are you going to come face-to-face with a raccoon? Either way, an intruder of another sort, but still, it can happen. Be prepared for all possibilities, all scenarios. And the biggest thing I tell people is one of the first things I grab when I hear a noise in the middle of the night, I grab a flashlight, a good flashlight, something I can see well with that can light up a room pretty easily because I want to be able to see. You can't shoot what you can't see. Well, except by accident. But if you're focusing on what you're doing, you can't shoot what you can't see. You can hear somebody. You can know they're not supposed to be there. If you can't see them, your chance of shooting them is going to be much less than if you can see what your target is. So a flashlight should be one of the number one things you keep in that nightstand next to you, assuming you sleep at night. Now, if you work at night and you sleep during the day, your your particular requirements are different than mine. Just something to keep in mind. It's funny because people always assume everything's the same. 
conditions are different for everybody. Everybody has different needs they have to have met in order to get the best defensive scenario. So going with the majority of people who work during the day and sleep at night, a flashlight should be one of your number one investments for your home defense system. So even if you do have a gun, you have to be able to see what you're shooting at. Get a good flashlight and make sure the batteries stay charged, stay fresh, stay changed, whatever they need to keep that flashlight operational 24-7, 365 days a week. Now, this may be a little extreme, but having a backup flashlight is not a terrible idea either. Most people have two nightstands in their house. Put a flashlight in both of them. What's the harm? A flashlight's a relatively inexpensive way to be able to defend yourself. A lot of times, if someone is to break into your house or start snooping around the outside of your house, you shine a flashlight around, all of a sudden they're going to know somebody's home, they're looking for me, something's going on, and most criminals are cowards. They're not looking to confront anybody. They want an easy score, and if they see a flashlight roaming around your house or lights start coming on, this may be enough to put somebody off from breaking into your house. Now, if they're already in the house... The flashlight can be used to help disorient them, to put their eyesight out for a little while. And that's why when you're looking around the house, turn the flashlight on, look around a room, turn it off. Because a flashlight works both ways. It enables you to see. It also enables anybody in the house to see somebody's there. They see where the light is coming from. And that's something that takes time to learn also, to be able to scan a room quickly See if anybody's in it. Shut the light off. Then move. Change your position if you do find a threat in the house. Unless it's a four-legged threat. Those are a little different. All right. We'll be right back after this. This is Roger B. on Locked and Loaded. And you're listening to America's Web Radio. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to the Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. Veteran-owned America's Web Radio endorses and supports Dr. Rich McCormick for Georgia's 6th District, U.S. House of Representatives. As a decorated Marine helicopter pilot, and now an emergency room doctor who served on the front lines against COVID-19, Dr. Rich McCormick has never been afraid of a fight. Whether it's communist China abroad, or the radical left in America, Rich knows the next fight facing America is to stop socialism. He's all in. Vote for Rich McCormick. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. I am Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Now, right before we left for the break, we were talking about how to defend yourself in your own home. What do you need? What kind of things do you need to look for? What kind of things do you need to consider before purchasing a gun or a taser or a shocking device or whatever it is you feel comfortable using to defend yourself with. And like I say, the first thing you should invest in is a good quality flashlight because you can't shoot what you can't see. At least that's a 
a good rule of thumb to take take to the to the search if you're going through your house. And also, know where everybody in your house is or where they're supposed to be. You know, so many people accidentally shop because they're not where they're supposed to be in their house. If you have children, know, especially if they're teenagers, you don't know where they are all the time. Make sure they understand they need to have a procedure. When they come home, you've been slated, but they don't want you to know. You need to know when they come home. <coughs> but that's something that, you know, teenagers have dealt with throughout time. Coming home late and not wanting parents to know they're coming home late. But just be aware. If you have kids in the house, know that they may be wandering around. They may be loose. And don't think you have an intruder at your first thought, especially if you have children or partners in the house who you know move around or get up during the night or have different hours than you. Keep that in mind. That's why a flashlight is so important. You see what you shoot at before you shoot. You see your toddler playing with Legos on the stairs, don't shoot them. Even though it may seem like a shooting offense to put Lego blocks on the stairs, it's not. But, all right, so now you have your flashlight. Now you're going to go purchase your first gun. If you don't know anything about it or don't have any opinion per se or are not sure, always ask people who who you think know more than you do. If you have any friends who are avid shooters, if you have gun shops where you've met people who are who you think seem to be of reputable reputation, go online, see what people recommend. You know, with the internet today, you have so much information available so instantly. Now, granted, not everything you read online is going to be truthful, obviously. Not everything on the internet is real. But there are probably enough people out there making videos, showing procedures, showing training exercises to where you should be able to get a basic basic idea of what you need to be able to know. With a semi-automatic handgun, you need to know how to clear a misfire or a jam. You need to know if that you pull that trigger and it goes snap and nothing happens. It doesn't go bang. You need to be able to rack that slide very quickly, rechamber another bullet, and try it again. Rechamber a cartridge and try it again. This is something you should try in the range, however, first. Always practice anything that you think might be a scenario. Now, the first thing is to learn to keep your shoulders square, feet shoulders shoulder width apart, bring up both hands on the on the gun, fire on the target successfully a number of times. That's your first bit of training. You want to learn how to shoot the gun, not be surprised by it, by the by the bang, by the recoil, any of that stuff. You want to be able to be comfortable when it goes off, know what to expect. Shoot it comfortably, learn how to aim properly, and then as you get the basic skills down, then you want to get into things that are a little more popular or a little more probable as far as being able to have a a scenario where you have a problem. You want to be able to clear a jam quickly. If your gun doesn't fire, what's the next step? What do you do? Depends on what kind of gun it is. You have a revolver, you pull the trigger, it goes click, you pull the trigger again very quickly. You'll know whether it's loaded at all or has anything in it if you keep snapping it. With a semi-automatic, unfortunately, if it goes snap on either an empty chamber or a dud round, you need to learn how to cycle the weapon very quickly and get it back on target and be able to pull the trigger with an accurate aiming point. You need to be able to do that. Pull it down, push it to the side, whatever it takes. There are ways, there are methods that you can train with to learn how to clear a jam or recycle a weapon quickly 
That would be probably one of the first things you want to learn to do after you learn the basic shooting skills. Learn how to bring the gun up on target. Learn how to shoot accurately. And you're going to start off slow. Always start off slow. You're going to build speed as you get more skill level. Mr. B, one thing that uh, it just dawned on me that I don't think we've ever talked about, but, you know, you're at the range, you've got your paper target, and you hit the paper target, and you're high, you're low, you're off to the side, you're up and down, and we've never really talked about shooting for a pattern. Oh, for consistency. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, consistency with any kind of sport is always extremely desirable. Whether you're playing tennis and you're trying to make that shot over the net, you want it to go to the same spot you can. When shooting your gun, you want it to be able to go where you want it to. Pick a point on the target. Now, when you first start, they're going to give you a huge silhouette target, and you want to focus as much in the middle as you can. Now, as you advance from that stage... You want to be able to pick a portion of the target. What I suggest is getting the little fluorescent dots, little fluorescent stick-on dots you can buy at Walmart or any office supply place. Stick them on the target. Use that as a focus point. There's an old expression that says, aim small, miss small. If you're aiming at a silhouette-sized target at the whole thing, when you miss, you miss by three or four inches. That's still pretty good. You're keeping it centered. You're aiming at a one-inch target, and you miss by... Two or three inches, that's better than missing by five or six inches on the large target. Aim small, miss small. The smaller the point you pick to aim at, the less likely you are to miss by as big a margin. So keep that in mind. Use As you progress, you want to use smaller and smaller points on your target to draw your fire. And put it in different places. In fact, that's an exercise I love to use. You take a silhouette target, put the fluorescent dots in three or four different places on the target and select one, aim, aim, fire two shots on each of the small targets as close you can, as close as you can to hitting them. See how long it takes you. And as you get better at this, you change the position of the dots, you change your rate of fire to where you'll be able to draw out of a holster, fire on that target and come very close to hitting all four, five, three of your areas consistently. It's just one more way to train. I mean, standing there firing at the silhouette over and over and over again is good to learn consistency, to learn your skill set, learn your basic grip, your firearm handling, learn to line your sights up properly. All that's the first step. After that, you start expounding your area of knowledge. Now, if all you want to do is learn the basics, that's fine, but learn them well. Don't ever have to say, oh, I didn't know the gun was loaded. You should always know when the gun is loaded. I never want to hear that excuse from anybody who knows me. I didn't know it was loaded. There's no excuse for you not to check anything at least once or twice or three times. You can always check it an extra time and not have any problems, but if you don't check it enough times, something that's where something could go wrong. So safety first always. Learn the four rules of gun safety. See if I remember these properly. Um, don't point a gun at anything you don't intend to shoot. Make sure of your target and the backstop. Keep your finger off the trigger until you are ready to fire. And don't point the gun at anything you don't intend to destroy. I think that's right. I don't know. But anyway, those are the, 
you can start with those. But don't shoot at anything you don't don't point your gun at anything you don't intend to shoot at. Or I should say, aim your gun at anything you don't intend to shoot at. When you're handling a weapon, be aware of where the muzzle is, where it's pointed. Now, granted, though, when you take it out of a case, it's going to point somewhere you don't want it to shoot. Highly unlikely you'll be able to take that gun out of a case, set it on a gun range counter, and not have it point somewhere, whether it's ceiling or floor or walls. But just be aware of where the muzzle is. Keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot. Treat every gun as if it were loaded. Even though you just checked it, treat it as if it's loaded because that way you won't be able to use the excuse, I didn't know it was loaded. That is the biggest cop-out in the world. I don't want to hear anybody ever have to use that excuse. Treat it as if it's loaded all the time. Keep it aimed in a safe direction. Be aware of your target in the backstop. Keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot. So start there. Learn the safety aspects. Then get out there and shoot. And do it until you're comfortable. If you shoot two magazines full of ammo and you go home at the end of the day, you probably haven't learned too much. Especially if you're just starting out. If you're just starting out, you should probably shoot no less than 200 rounds of ammo in a few hour period going to the range. If you have somebody who's willing to train you properly. And they should be constantly correcting your grip, correcting your stance, correcting your finger position on the trigger. All these things to maximize your accuracy. And if you do that, you'll be better and better at it every time you go. So be aware of that. Let's see where we... Okay, we got to get to California, though. I said we were going to do that. California has had an interesting approach to gun rights as far back as, I believe, probably right around 1994, when they passed the first crime bill. All, all the cities, all the states had to abide by these national laws. Then when it sunset in 2004... A lot of places still hung on to these restrictive measures that were put in place for a temporary, on a temporary basis. And California took that and they went even a step further, way further. They passed, what is it, the Safe Gun Act, Safe Handgun Act? Oh, actually they called it the Unsafe Handgun. And they were trying to determine which pistols or revolvers would be safe enough for people to carry according to their opinion, their laws. And they pass laws that put restrictions on these weapons. Most of them were fairly reasonable in their scope. Like, for instance, they said in a semi-automatic weapon, you should have a chamber-loaded indicator. Most semi-automatic weapons have that in one way or another, whether it's a little red mark that shows up when there's a bullet in the chamber, whether there's a little open window in the top of the chamber to look down and see if you can see brass. Most of them will use the extractor in a semi-automatic pistol and have it extend slightly so you can run your finger over it, and if it's sticking out, you know there's something in the chamber. Now, it doesn't tell you whether it's a live round or an empty round, whatever, but you should be able to tell something is in the chamber. Don't pull the trigger until you're ready to shoot. And that's a reasonable, that is a reasonable request for, for gun manufacturers to have a chamber in indicator on their weapons, a loaded chamber indicator on their weapon. The next thing they wanted was a magazine disconnect safety. Now, that to me is mm, probably not the best idea. But it's not unreasonable. A lot of weapons manufacturers, particularly European manufacturers, are big on magazine disconnect safeties. What is a magazine disconnect safety? A magazine disconnect safety will not allow you to operate or 
fire the we- it won't fire the weapon if there's no magazine in it. And the idea of this is if there's a round in the chamber and the magazine is not in it, they're assuming you don't want to fire this weapon. So they will not allow it to fire with a round in the chamber if the magazine is not seated properly in the grip. Now, for most basic beginning shooters, this is probably a fine thing to have. It's not going to cause any issues because you're not playing, you're not doing tactical reloads. You're not vulnerable during the time of reload like somebody who's in a tactical situation may be. Because if you're a more experienced shooter or you carry a gun every day for a living, you're in law enforcement, you're in the military, you do not need that weapon to be disabled without a magazine in it. You need it to be able to shoot. You could be pulling a magazine out and you want that live round in your chamber to be able to be fired if necessary. You don't want to have that gun incapable of firing once the magazine is removed. But for most people in everyday scenarios, that's not really a big issue. And this was not a big issue for manufacturers either. Most of them could find a way to have a spring-loaded control arm that would stop the gun from firing if the magazine was removed. Not a big problem. Then they decided, I think it was in 1999 or no, 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 2003, I think it was. 2013, I'm sorry, 2013, they decided that in order for a gun to be safe, it had to be able to micro stamp a unique marking or unique number on the shell of a semi-automatic weapon when it was fired, and it had to have this mark in two separate places. It could be on the primer, which is on the end of the firing pin, and somehow on the case, when the round was fired, it had to have some imprint, some unique identifying marker that they could put on the gun. And you may wonder, oh, well, that sounds interesting. How would they yeah, could track people when they found their you know, loose rounds at a crime scene? And yeah, that would be an interesting idea if it were possible. To date, no manufacturer has produced uh, <clears throat> a custom imprinted way of marking a shell when it's fired out of a semi-automatic and a production weapon. So it's basically it was an unreasonable unreasonable request because the technology was not available. It didn't exist. They could probably do it in theory and show you a way where it could be done, but it wasn't practical to implement. Like what is it? Uh, fusion. Yeah, sure, there's fusion power. We see it in the sun every day. Imagine if the government came along and said, "Well, if there's fusion available, we should be able to use it in cars by 2035." Every car should be a fusion-powered car. Obviously, the technology is not there to do that on a production basis, on a on a large-scale basis. Same thing with this uh, micro-stamping technology. There was no technology available to make this capable of being produced on a current handgun. So they basically made a, an unreasonable request of weapons manufacturers to have this technology available to them to be able to make these guns. Now, any gun that did not meet these new safety standards, unless it was grandfathered in, if it was available before the time this law went into effect, then it was on the the roster list. Now, the roster list is a list of guns that are legal in California because anything that doesn't meet these safety requirements is not allowed to be sold to civilians in California. However, 
any of these guns without these safety devices can be sold to law enforcement officers. So if these are truly safety requirements, how come the police officers are allowed to have guns that are considered unsafe in California? Why would you want your police officers carrying a gun that the state considers unsafe for anybody else to have? Now, I understand police officers need to have leeway in what rights they have, but to determine what kind of weapon they can carry versus what kind of weapon you can carry, that they went a little far with this because police officers can carry these guns even though they're not legal for everybody else in the state to have without the micro-stamping technology. Now, you figured for police officers, that would be extremely important if the micro-stamping was available. Why shouldn't all police officers' weapons have this capability so during a shootout or some place where they had to use their weapon or call for use of it, they'd be able to see how many rounds they fired, attributed which rounds to which officer and which gun. It would be so much help, so much more helpful in investigations, especially when police are involved. But the technology wasn't there. It couldn't be done on a production basis without being ridiculously expensive. That's why no manufacturer to date has come up with a standard production handgun that's capable of micro-stamping. Because it's that unreasonable of a request. You may wonder, well, what happened to the guns in California then? Well, as new models came out, these new models were not grandfathered in. Even if it was the same gun, same model number, if it was an improved version anyway, it had to be retested or reinspected for these safety features. And if it didn't have everything on there, it was not allowed to be sold in California. So what did that do? That dried up the supply. I mean, you're talking about weapons like Exco or Easy, Glock 17. It's available from Gen 1 up to, I think, Gen 5 they're up to now. Now, granted, it is a different gun in some ways. Sometimes there's just cosmetic features like adjustable grip panels, things like that. But any model that was not around when the law was passed in 2003 is not allowed to be put on the roster unless it meets all the safety requirements. Even though they were unreasonable, impractical, and virtually impossible to implement, California didn't care. They thought this technology should be able to be implemented, and they didn't care that it was not available. They put it down as a safety requirement that all pistols had to have. And if this pistol didn't meet this requirement, it was not allowed to be on the roster, which is like a list of legal guns in California. Now, I was talking about the Glock a minute ago. Gen 1 through Gen 3s, at the time this law went into effect, I think Glock was up to Gen 3, was their latest weapon. But then when the Gen 4 came out, that was not legal in California. And when Gen 5 came out, not legal in California. However, Glock, seeing California as a large market, decided, you know what? We'll keep making the Gen 3 Glock just to satisfy the needs of California buyers. Because if it wasn't for that, California would not have had a Glock that was manufactured in the last 10 years available for sale in California unless it was purchased first by a police officer. Then police officers are allowed to sell person-to-person through a gun shop these weapons that were not legal in California except to government government workers and police officers. So that was the only way to get a pistol that was not on the California roster was to have a police officer buy it first and then do a resale on it. And I think there were restrictions as to how long they had to have it. They had to own it for at least six months or a year before they were allowed to do a resale. What this did, though, we found out, there was an investigation into this, I think, a year or so ago. 
California police officers were buying whatever number of guns they were allowed to buy a year and then reselling them in a year. So they were keeping a constant supply of these newer weapons going into the public's hands because they could sell them at a premium. They can make from two to five, seven hundred dollars more on all these weapons, reselling them, especially if they were new, as long as they own them for the minimum required amount of time first. So, you know, on a police officer's salary, if you could make a few thousand dollars extra a year just by buying and reselling some guns, that was a way to do it. And apparently some of the guys were exceeding their number of maximum weapons they were allowed to do in a year by getting relatives, spouses, their children, somebody else who was of legal age to purchase these weapons <clears throat> and put it under their name somehow and then resell them. You know, because I guess that maybe the spouses of police officers were able to meet this also. But anyway, they were buying a lot of guns, reselling them to the public, and they decided, no, this we shouldn't have this able to do. Well, now, just, I think it was two weeks ago, a judge has decided the California micro-stamping law is unconstitutional, meaning you cannot put a requirement in that requires manufacturers to have micro-stamping technology in their pistols because it is too restrictive, it's too difficult to abide by, and it is unconstitutional because it infringes on your rights. So now, these last couple of weeks, from what I saw, I think there was like 40 to 50 guns being added to the legal-to-own-in-California roster, which means I think SIG was the one that actually took out a billboard in California saying... Now legal in California, and that a picture of their 320 up there, which is, I guess, as long as it has the magazine disconnect safety and a chamber load indicator, that should be fine. So they've opened up the market in California tremendously with this ruling by the judge. They decided that all these guns that used to be illegal are now all of a sudden have to be made legal in California. And apparently gun shop owners and customers are flocking to get these new models that they drooled over for years and couldn't have unless they're willing to pay a huge premium up to twice as much as the guns are worth in order to have them. So now they're able to get some of these. Now, I'd like to see what company... I think Ruger had a couple done the first week. I think Sky Industries had a bunch that they had tested the first week. Now, even with the micro-stamping law gone, these guns must still meet the other requirements of the unsafe handgun law. And they have to pay a $200 fee to California to test, inspect, look at these weapons, and make sure they meet the requirements. They have to do that every year. So every year when they redo the roster, every manufacturer pays $200 for every model that they want to keep on the legal-to-own gun roster. Now, for most companies selling thousands and thousands of these pistols, not a big deal. For guys selling a much more limited number, $200 is still not unreasonable, but it may keep them from pushing as many of their models as they want on the market. Because they may look and say, well, you know, all of our 1911 or 2011 45s start at $4,000 and go up to eight or $10,000. Our limited market in California is not worth paying to have each one of those high-end models tested. Pay three or $4,000 in testing fees to sell, you know, 20 guns a year. It's not worth it. But most of them will pay the fee, average it out into the cost, and it won't be, it won't be hard, it'll be negligible, the difference in cost to pay the $200 fee for that. But now California is going to get ready for an influx of new weapons that they've never been able to have before. It's like the last 10 years for them didn't exist. 
as far as weapons go. I remember I had somebody visiting, took them shooting, and they loved the VP9. The HK VP9 was one that that was one of their favorites. They picked out of the ones that we took to the range. Unfortunately, being from California, since it's a more recent weapon, it was not allowed to be sold in California until now. <clears throat> and it's funny, I've talked to a few people out there, and they're telling me, I'm making a list. I'm getting all these guns that I wanted to get forever and I couldn't get because now they're all legal as long as they have the other features in them. They don't have to have micro-stamping anymore. Micro-stamping was basically a death blow for any new model coming out. Because like I said, no production company ever produced a weapon that had micro-stamping technology on a mass basis. Yeah, there was a few people who experimented with it and were able to get glimpses of what it could be, but it never became production models. None of the new guns sold to the public in California ever had the micro-stamping technology available. So this is going to open up the market in California finally, and they'll be able to catch up with the rest of the country. Now, they still have their 10-round restrictive magazines, load chamber indicators, magazine disconnect safeties, which is one that's going to be a little tricky because it requires modification. If they don't have it, they got to decide, is the California market worth it to modify our gun with a magazine disconnect safety? Some will say yes, some will say no. Any manufacturers that already have it are going to be able to jump right in as long as their cho- chamber load indicators are, are functional and they have the magazine disconnect safety available, they'll be able to do that. Now, I know a lot of aficionados don't like the magazine disconnect safety because of it, dis- it disables the weapon when the magazine is out. Currently, if you have one without a magazine disconnect safety, you could load one round in the chamber if you didn't have a magazine, and you could fire it. One round at a time, you could fire this weapon. With the magazine disconnect safety, without the magazine, the weapon is useless. It cannot fire a round without the magazine firmly seated in the grip. Now, are there ways around this? Probably. I don't know how valid it would be to have a handgun modified to not meet the requirements. Once you own it, can you modify it for whatever safety you think is valid? I don't know how they're going to check this unless they catch you doing something else. Chances are magazine disconnect safety will never be something that gets inspected on an ordinary citizen's gun. Now, if he does something illegal... They'll certainly throw that up and try and make that as the whole reason why the shooting took place, because he didn't have a magazine disconnect safety on his weapon, which is kind of silly. I mean, like I say, a lot of European guns come with it, so they'll be probably first into the market or have options available to people in California that were not available before. So if you live in California, now's the time to go out and go gun shopping. Hopefully, you guys aren't going to create so much of a demand that it drives the price up for the rest of us in the rest of the country or in other places where we can have all these lovely, beautiful, fantastically great engineered weapons that you've been unavailable to have for years and years and years. For 10 years, the handgun market in California has been stifled, shut down, completely unimprovable. You can't get any improved version of a gun, any new model of a gun. Which is, like I say, why Glock kept making the Gen 3s, just for the California market. And some people swear by the Gen 3 over the new Gens. And to me, they're all very similar. They do have improvements here and there. One thing that's going to be interesting to see is the availability of weapons with optics cuts. With cutouts on the slide to mount optics on. Because almost all of those weapons are newer versions of 
of any weapon that was available. Now, granted, you can get one custom cut. You know, if you had an old 1911, you can get it custom cut for an optic. But all these new guns that have these optic cuts available now, California, get ready. You're going to see what the what the all the to do is about having an optic on a handgun. It takes a little getting used to, but it is fun. I enjoy it. Once you get used to it, it makes it to me. It makes it so much safer, quote unquote, that California should have allowed this years ago. Because this makes a gun safer. Anything that improves accuracy is going to make a gun safer. Because if you can shoot straighter, shoot better, shoot more accurately, that's so much better than not being able to do those things. If you're not as accurate, you're not as you're, you're not as safe as someone who's more accurate. You're much more likely to hit something you're not trying to hit. So it's it's funny how they disguise these laws under the guise of safety, when in fact most of the safety factors that they're trying to implement make the gun that much less safe, that much less likely to be accurate, to be improved upon. So go shopping, California. Look at what's available. Now, these guns, I assume all these manufacturers are going to request inspections to let their guns come onto the market, and it may take months and months before all the manufacturers decide how they want to proceed, especially these ones who have come into the into use more recently and have never been legal in California. All these manufacturers now have to go through the procedure to get their gun legal in California. Some of them have had no experience with this because they they weren't around when this first started, so they never had to submit anything for testing. Or at the time they had it, they knew they didn't meet other specifications. So now they may decide, you know what? Now that the requirements are more reasonable, They're going to get all these submissions, I think, to get onto the California gun roster. And I hope you guys get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new choices in the next few months. And hopefully the law will stand up. I don't know if it's been appealed yet or not. But right now, apparently California is testing these weapons. And they're allowing any new guns to come onto their market and be legal for ownership in California. So if you ever wanted a Gen 4 Glock or a VP9 or a SIG 320, all these are now guns you can have in California as long as they meet the chamber load indicator and magazine disconnect safety, they will be available. Now, there was some issue with the magazine disconnect safety. It was only, I think from the way I read it, it was if it was a single action type pistol where the firing pin was resting on the primer of the cartridge but I'm not sure Uh, I'd have to read through it again and see if I can determine what they were trying to restrict or not restrict but in any case California is open now hopefully you'll be seeing a ton more of these weapons and what that will also open up is the market for holsters for accessories now they still have their 10 round magazine limit so depending on the manufacturer if they've been sold in other states with 10 round limits then they'll be ready to move into California on the same basis. But if they don't sell it to any states that have 10-round magazine restrictions, that's another business decision they will have to make to see what it would cost to retool or manufacture or find a way to block uh, standard capacity magazines to fit the restricted capacity requirements. Yes, these are not high capacity. These are standard capacity magazines that are restricted to 10 rounds. So the restricted capacity is what you want to avoid. But in California, even though you can get the new guns, they still must meet the 10-round magazine requirement because that has not been determined to be illegal. 
10 rounds is a limit that states can place, cities can place, and they can enforce that. As of now, no one has won a case saying 10 rounds is illegal or somehow infringing on our rights. Now, I think it was the governor of New York who actually signed something saying that magazines could only have seven rounds. And when he was pointed out that virtually no manufacturers make seven-round magazines for anything that has higher capacity, that these magazines are virtually do not exist, he said, okay, we can use 10-round magazines, but you cannot have them loaded with more than seven rounds. Now, I don't know who goes around and checks everybody's guns. I don't know if they have anybody going door-to-door saying, let me see your gun, let me make sure you don't have more than seven rounds in that magazine. It was a ridiculous requirement. I think it still stands. I'm not sure. But most people, I believe, were just being noncompliant in that in that factor. In fact, most of them had the 10-round, and they honored that, but they're not getting to the 7-round one. Now, in California, however, they had that Freedom Week where Judge Benitez struck down the magazine limit capacity or magazine capacity limits and opened it up to any magazine capacity you want. Standard capacity magazines were flowing into California by the hundreds of thousands. Estimated 1.3 standard capacity magazines flowed into California during that week. So if you had bought magazines, even for a gun you didn't own, you could have bought the magazines during that time period and had them available. Now, I don't know how police can check this because magazines are not serialized with dates. They don't know when they were manufactured. There's no way to determine that. So that's going to be another factor if it comes into play. Right now, I think they're just happy they can get these handguns. They're going to get whatever magazines they can find. Question? Yeah, question. Uh, you know, you're talking about uh, putting the the data on them and so forth. You know, the German Luger is amazing. If you buy one of the original ones, that all the parts. Right. A lot of German guns still do that. Hmm. They serialize every part on the gun. Because a lot of restrictive laws in Europe and uh, Japan, things like that, you have to have everything serialized. And prior to 94, they didn't put any stuff on it. After 94, they were required to identify it somehow as a post-94 magazine if it was more than 10 rounds. But it was it was amazing. I mean, this goes back to, as far as the German Luger goes back right. to World War II. 1909, I think, or 1908 was the first Luger, yeah. Was it? Yeah, pre-World pre, pre War One for sure. Wow. And for them to be capable of serializing every part. Yeah, well, our manufacturers are capable of it. That's not a big deal. It's just whether they want to or not. <laughs> In fact... It's still a pretty bold task for a, a manufacturer. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what the magazine's made of. The plastic ones are probably the hardest one, to do. One, 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 you know. Yeah, just to match them up. Yeah. Well, here they wouldn't even have to match them up. They would have to say serial numbers before this were manufactured at this date. Because if you buy extra magazines, they're not going to match, obviously. And most of the guns you're talking about were matched with one or two magazines, and that was all that matched. I hate to say it, brother. But we're, we're done. We're done. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.